The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 45, to the chief musician set to the lilies, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart is overflowing with the good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad, king's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you with gladness and rejoicing. They shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right, we're in Esther chapter 3 today. It's verses 1 through 15. We're going to do the whole chapter, and it is entitled, There is a Certain People. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set him his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, 
There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. Then the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out hastened by the king's command and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. The Jewish people are facing real trouble in today's verses. It seems like a truly calamitous affair as to where they are with the verses we just read. And indeed, for anyone who was to stop at this point in the story, it would seem like a sad end for them. But they were selected by God, and he made great and sure promises to them. What they need now is not a drop into the pit of despair, but a reminder of the covenant promises made to them and faith that those promises are true. And this is true with every person now who is one of the redeemed of the Lord. For the person who is called on Christ, there is no situation too hopeless, no disaster too great, and no loss so complete that good will not come out of it. When one thing is lost, another thing is provided. When one door is shut, another one will open up. When a child dies, someone affected by that death calls on Christ and is born again. What we think of as impossible, God uses as the perfect opportunity. When we can't see how things will ever be right again, God has already straightened out that which is broken. And I'm not saying this to be cliche. It's simply true. Because of Jesus Christ in the believer's life, the worst possible thing we could imagine is just a step to something better. Got cancer and are dying? Heaven is waiting. Bad cannot outdo good. And joy lies ahead for those who wait on the Lord. Our text verse today comes from Isaiah chapter 45. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. Long before Israel was in exile, the Lord had already called Cyrus by name to release Israel from captivity. Everything is already known in the Lord's mind. There is no thing that can thwart his will, and the disasters of exile for disobedience were overcome by favor and restoration for those who wish to return home. 
But some Jews stayed in the land of their exile. One might call this disobedience, but God uses it as an opportunity. That will be seen in the chapters ahead. Many Jews died in the Holocaust, but that set the stage for their reestablishment as a nation. There are still Jews in the dispersion today, but they are being used to both bless and protect Israel that has returned. God is using all of these things for a good end for them. Though they are not right with him at this time, he is looking forward to a time ahead when they will be. If you look at the world from a biblical perspective, it doesn't matter how bad things seem. There is always, always something positive ahead. And so as we look into the verses today, and as we end on an otherwise sad note, let us remember that the book is written, the story is complete, good things are ahead, and we are just in the process of getting there. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first thought is the Agagite. It's verses 1 through 7. After these things, verse 1. The words are speaking of the events at the end of chapter 2 where Mordecai uncovered a plot to harm the king. This was subsequently passed on to the king who had the conspirators hung. It is after these things that the story brings in the next relevant events to be detailed. The timing of them is between the 7th and 12th year of the reign of King Ahasuerus. (laughs) The seventh year is mentioned in verse 216, and the twelfth would be seen in verse 37. Verse 1 continues, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Gidal Hamalech Ahashverosh et Haman made large Ahasuerus Haman. The words are actually explained in the first clause of the verse, but the promotion is stated here in this abrupt way to form a contrasting parallel in the narrative between the exaltation of Esther in the previous chapter and that of Haman here. One has found the favor of the king's heart, the other has found the favor of his throne. The actual meaning of the name Haman is debated, some tie it to various Persian words, but the true meaning appears lost to history. From a Hebrew perspective, it is closely associated with the verb aman, which means to confirm or be truthful. If so, then his name might mean certainty, but we can't say this with all certainty. The name of one of the seven eunuchs in verse 110, mehuman, is derived from the same word in the Aramaic version of this verb. And so some have tied Haman in as the same person who is now promoted above the others. As noted in the first sermon, Esther is a book which is read annually at the Jewish Feast of Purim. As the book is read, every time the name Haman is read, all of the people shout and they rattle noise-making toys to drown out his name. He is identified then as the epitome of the enemy of the Jews, a title he is actually given four times in the book of Esther, beginning in verse 310. One can almost taste what lies ahead because of the sudden introduction of this vile person. Understanding biblical history, one could then find a reason for what will come about in the story. That begins to be revealed with the next words. Verse 1 continues, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. The name Hamadatha is almost ignored by all scholars as to any known meaning. The closest attempt at explaining it is that it is tied to the word Mahadatha, meaning given by the moon, and thus it might be inferred that he would be the son of the one who works in darkness. The designation Agagite is also of singular note and importance. 
The name Agag is connected to the word Gag or roof. It thus signifies that which is the highest. This name is directly connected to the names Gog and Magog. Magog goes back to Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, as a son of Japheth. Gog and Magog are found as the great enemies who will come against Israel, as is noted in Ezekiel 38 and Revelation chapter 20. Agog is first seen in Numbers 24, verse 7, in an oracle given by Balaam the prophet. In his oracle, he blesses Israel with these words. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. After this, Agag is mentioned again in 1 Samuel chapter 15. There he is noted as Agog, king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were most notably mentioned in Exodus chapter 17. It is a passage which must be repeated to gain a fuller understanding of the narrative. Here's what it says. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it was so when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands on one side and on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The name Amalek is derived from the word Am, or people, and from the word Malak, which means to nip or wring off the head of a bird with or without severing it from the body. Thus, they are the people who wring off. They are those who are disconnected from the body and strive to disconnect the body. It is a fitting description of Haman and his coming actions. The Amalekites attempted to wring off the Israelites in Exodus 17, and they were defeated. But the promise was that the Lord would have war with Amalek from generation to generation. There would be an end to this ongoing war, though. Again, in Balaam's prophecy, in Numbers 24, he pronounced these words. Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. This same group came against Israel during the time of the judges and into the time of the kings. It is in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where the names Amalek and Agag are united and which become a key to understanding what is going on here in Esther. The entire chapter needs to be read to get this. And so I'm going to read you 1 Samuel 15. It's a little bit long, but it'll help you understand what's going on here. Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. 
but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, oxen, sheep, camel, and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieves Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went up to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. Then he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agog, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than that fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet... Honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. 
Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. After this story, the Amalekites continued to trouble Israel, including battles with King David. When Saul was injured in battle, he killed himself by falling on his own sword. However, an Amalekite came to David with Saul's crown and claimed to have been the one to have killed him. In this, David had him executed. But the stain of the conflict between Saul and Amalek was deep. It is what is explicitly stated as having cost him his continuing right to the kingship of Israel. With this understanding, we can now go back and see why the genealogy of Mordecai was so carefully noted in verse 2-5. His ancestors went back to Kish, a Benjamite. King Saul was a son of Kish, meaning that Mordecai and Esther were of the same family within Benjamin as Saul, but they were related to Kish through Saul's nephew Shimei, who is also listed in Esther 2, verse 5. As I said then, Shimei is recorded as having cursed King David in 2 Samuel 16, verse 5. Eventually, that same person was executed by Solomon in 1 Kings 2, verse 46. It is Kish who is the tie between these two genealogies. It is from his house that both King Saul and Mordecai through Shimei come. They are both sons of Kish according to ancestry. This Kish is mentioned by Saul or Paul in Acts 13 verse 21. The name of Kish is connected to the word Kush, a verb meaning to ensnare. Thus it may mean to snare. And so we can see now that Haman, the Agagite of Amalek, is being set in opposition to Mordecai, who descends from Kish, the Benjamite. A double disgrace fell upon this line. First, Saul was ensnared in his failure to destroy Amalek as ordered, and he lost the kingship. Secondly, Shimei was ensnared in his hatred of David, who was chosen to replace Saul, cursing this new royal line. Both of these stains rested upon the line of Kish. The story in Esther shows a correction of these failures of the past. As a note, it is assumed that the name Agog is not necessarily the proper name of this person in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that I just read you, but rather it is a royal title, just as Pharaoh is not a name but a title. Either way, Haman is described as an Agagite, one who is of Amalek and who is said to be at war with Israel from generation to generation, and whose name and clan will eventually perish. Verse 1 continues, And advanced him, and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. These words explain the first clause, which said the king had promoted Haman. However, more is left out of what is said about the promotion than what is stated. We aren't told why he was promoted, from what position he was promoted, and so on. The record simply and succinctly records his promotion above the others. Verse 2, And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. The term servants here gives the sense of those lower than the princes of the court. As they are said to be within the king's gate, then it would be the same level of servant as Mordecai, who was said to sit within the king's gate in the previous chapter. 
This lower class of servants bowed and paid homage to Haman. The same word, abed, or servant, is used when speaking of the Messiah in Isaiah 52, verse 13. The word translated as bowed comes from a root signifying to bend the knee. It is some sign of obeisance from a curtsy to a bow or even to kneeling. The act then explains the second word translated as paid homage. The sign of bowing is what then pays the homage. One can bow without paying homage, and one can pay homage without bowing. But here, one is tied to the other. Verse 2 continues, For so the king had commanded concerning him. This was the command of the king, just as it would be the command of the president of the United States who commissions officers within the military, that the enlisted ranks are to salute officers. The salute is the act, and the homage is tied to the act. It is the same thought in a salute, then, as is the thought in the bowing here. As it is the king's command, then it is expected to be followed. Verse 2 continues, but Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. It is generally assumed that this is tied in with the fact that he is a Jew, as is explicitly stated in verse 4. From this, it is held by most scholars that because he is a Jew, it would be inappropriate for him to bow in homage to a man being a type of idolatry. This, however, seems unlikely at best. The same word, shacha, is used many times for a man bowing or prostrating before other men. Abraham did it before the sons of Heth. It is a regular occurrence before kings and others in the books of Samuel and the books of Kings and elsewhere. To this day, Jews serve in governments around the world, and they might give proper respect to their designated authorities. In the United States military, they salute their superiors, and they salute the president and the flag. Further, if this type of salute was required for Haman, then it would certainly be required for the king. If Mordecai refused to honor the king, it would mean execution rather than being someone who sat within the king's gate. It appears that as a Jew, Mordecai refused to bow to Haman because he was an Agagite and thus an Amalekite. This is certainly what is the case here. The ancient enmity between these rivals made Mordecai refuse to pay homage to the enemy of the Jews. Verse 3, then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? It is the same word for servants as in verse 2. In other words, those of the same rank as Mordecai who were willing to pay homage to Haman, but they noticed that he was not. And so their question to him is obvious. Why do you transgress the king's command? The very nature of the question shows that this has nothing to do with him being a Jew who cannot pay homage based on religious grounds. If so, then they would have asked the same thing when he failed to honor the king in this way. Even more, he never would have been a servant of the king if he failed to pay him homage. They can tell that there is more involved between Mordecai and Haman and that it caused Mordecai to refuse to bow to him. Verse 4, now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them. There is a sense of frustration among the servants, as would be right under any normal circumstances. If a person were in the military and someone refused to salute an officer because he was black, he would probably say to him over a period of days, you're not being disobedient to that guy, you're being disobedient to the rank that he possesses. Despite your hatred of him, you need to respect the position. Eventually, though, through continued refusal, the matter would have to be elevated. There's nothing wrong in what is happening here. 
There appears to be a violation of the king's command, and they are rightly questioning Mordecai's refusal to obey it. And so, verse 4 continues, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. It is Mordecai's words, not his actions, which are mentioned. Were his words sufficient to support his actions? They check with Haman. It is the logical and appropriate action to take. Mordecai has stated his reasons for not paying homage to Haman. With no other option, the servants then pass this on to Haman to see whether he would force Mordecai to obey or whether Mordecai would prevail. Again, the tenor of this matter isn't that of a Jew refusing to pay homage because of religion, but because of enmity. If it was because of religion, it would have been seen in any other person who was so designated to receive the same type of honor, including the king. Rather, it is Haman who Mordecai will not bow to because of his genealogy, and this continues to be seen with the following words. Verse 4 continues, For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Of this, John Gill, who is in agreement with almost all scholars, says, He had told them that he was a Jew and therefore did not deny this reverence to Haman out of pride or any personal grudge against him, much less out of a rebellious mind and contempt of the king's authority and command but merely out of conscience, because he was a Jew who was obliged to give this honor to none but God only. I'm sorry, this is exactly the opposite of what is happening here. If this thought was correct, Haman's response would have been much different. Rather, because Mordecai was a Jew, he refused Haman any sort of obeisance at all. The matter is personal, and its roots go back to the very exodus of Israel from Egypt. The Amalekites were Israel's sworn enemies, and it would be loathsome to give homage to one of the enemies of the people of the Lord. This is clearly seen in Haman's response. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. The words and actions are taken personally. It is not the king's command which Haman is concerned about. Otherwise, it would have said that he was angry that he didn't obey the king's command. Instead, it is because Mordecai refused him homage. The ancient enmity is herein brought to remembrance. Those Jews who almost exterminated my people refused to give me homage now that I am over them. The entire thought is that of ancient rivalry rising to the surface and then foaming from the heat boiling within. This is exactly what the word chema or wrath signifies, heat boiling over in fury. Verse 6, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For Haman, it would not suffice to simply eradicate the offender. It would be too easy, too quickly forgotten, and it would not solve the root of the problem at all. There was a far larger issue that he was determined to deal with, and he was in the position which would allow him to do so with ease and with finality. Therefore, instead of laying hands on his immediate enemy alone, he would have them grab and destroy all those associated with him. Verse 6 continues, For they had told him of the people of Mordecai. With Mordecai's nationality revealed as to the source of the enmity, there would have to be a cleansing of that very source in order for the enmity to cease. It is exactly the same thing that has been seen countless times throughout history, among many races and even among the Jews at many times. Even in the Persian Empire, it was only 50 years earlier that the historian Herodotus says that when Darius Hystaspas ascended to the throne, he went out and massacred all of the Magi in the land. With such a precedent still in commemoration, 
His desires would simply be another event for the Empire to commemorate. Yes, rather than killing just Mordecai, verse 6 continues, instead Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. It is common for commentaries to say that the events of Esther occurred during the dispersion of the Jews from their homeland because the events occur outside of Israel. And it is true that Mordecai and many other Jews were in dispersion throughout the known world at this time. However, it is not true that this was during the period of exile. The exile had officially ended about 60 years before by the decree of Cyrus in 539 BC. As this is so, and as the land of Israel was now a province of the kingdom, it would mean that Israel would be completely eradicated. The ancient hatred would finally be ended through the annihilation of the Jewish people. Wherever they were, it was within the power of Haman to have them completely exterminated. Any outside of the kingdom itself would be so dispersed and so few in number that they would never, never, never recover from the events he was to plan and then execute. Verse 7, in the first month, which is in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Nisan is the first month of the redemptive calendar for the Jews. In Exodus, it is known as Aviv. However, the name Nisan was adopted after the Babylonian exile. The month corresponds to March-April on our calendar. As it is the 12th year of King Ahasuerus now, this is the year 474 B.C. It is on the 14th of Nisan that the Passover is commemorated. The Hebrew reads, from day to day and from month to month, 12th. In other words, lots were cast for each successive month and then each successive day within the month. In doing this, they would determine the most propitious time of the year to bring about the plan. The twelfth month, Adar is selected. When the wicked are in power, the people mourn and are afraid. Distress comes hour after hour. Sadness in heart and soul is constantly displayed. But God's people should never bow to them. We are to stand resolutely before our foes. Though they may threaten, haw, and hem, let us stand unconcerned that this is how it goes. Because the Lord has a plan, good and upright, for those who are his, it shall in time be revealed. The wicked will perish forever from his people's sight. Great is the plan that is at this time concealed. Our second thought today is, if it pleases the king, it's verses 8 through 15. Verse 8, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. The numbers of those who chose to return to the land with Zerubbabel are recorded in the book of Ezra. They numbered 42,360. Therefore, the majority of the Jews remained scattered throughout the empire. But he uses two words here to describe their scattering. First is a new word in scripture, hazar, or scattered. It then says parad, or separated. Not only were they scattered throughout the empire, but they were kept separated and aloof from the other peoples. Surely other groups were disobedient to the king, but such a wide scattering and with such an arrogance of attitude, great trouble was sure to arise in every place because, verse 8 continues, their laws are different from all other peoples and they do not keep the king's laws. It is true that the customs of the Jews were different and that they had not assimilated into the surrounding peoples. 
Further, the laws stemming from Moses were also different from many aspects of life, but those laws dealt with religion rather than a conflict with the set laws of the land. Further, the Jews are always known for obedience to the laws of the lands they live in to the highest degree possible. This was explicitly one of the words from the Lord through Jeremiah. They were to seek the peace of the city where they dwelt. In doing so, they too would have peace. Haman, however, has found one act of disobedience to the king's laws to be reason to accuse all Jews of total disobedience. And so, verse 8 continues, Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. It is a statement of supposed piety. I'm not doing this for my sake, but for your sake, in order to protect your kingdom. Verse 9, If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. In having a royal edict, the matter would become official kingdom policy. Through this, any stink of the offense would be lifted off of himself, and it would be placed on the king and on his court. Regardless of who suggested the law, the king was demonstrating agreement with it and full sanction for its execution. Haman would be completely off the hook when the matter was decreed. Verse 9 continues, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. This is an immense amount of money being offered by Haman to accomplish the task. In essence, he has already said that keeping the Jews alive would be costly to the empire, but in destroying them, it would also be costly to the empire. And so to rectify the situation, he would pay for it himself. Some scholars question the accuracy of the amount because of its enormous size. But historical records show that other individuals had offered even greater amounts to kings for such purposes as this. One new word in scripture here is genez, or treasuries. It is from a root meaning to store, and thus it is a chest or a coffer. It's going to be seen twice in Esther, once in Ezekiel, and that's it. Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. This is the first of another set of twos. Here the king takes off his signet ring and gives it to Haman so that he will possess the king's authority, including the issuance and authentication of an edict in the king's name. This will be done again for Mordecai in verse 8-2. The first time it is given to a Gentile, Haman the Amalekite. The next time it will be given to a Jew, Mordecai. This time it will be for the destruction of the Jews. Next it will be for their salvation. They contrast, yes, but they confirm that God has set up rulers and he deposes rulers in order to accomplish his purposes. The tabaat, or signet ring, comes from the word taba, meaning down or to sink. Thus it is a ring which is used to press down into wax or clay in order to impress a seal. It is that which speaks of authority. Haman is given the full authority to act on behalf of the king. The ring would act as a signet. When pressed into a wax seal, it would be equivalent to an issuance directly from the king himself. Thus, the king has agreed to the deed. And now the full authority of the Persian Empire is to be directed against the Jews by the hereditary enemy of the Jews. The full name and lineage are given here to show the momentous nature of the event. Verse 11, And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. There are two varied explanations for these words. The first is a refusal of the money offered by Haman. The decree is allowed and no expectation of payment is needed. The second is that the money being given to him is that of the plunder which is received from the killing of the Jews. 
Confiscation of property was always the result of capital punishment, and thus that would be received by the royal coffers. Either way, the king would benefit, and it would either cost Haman nothing, or he would also benefit monetarily. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month. This here seems purposeful and calculated by Haman. This is the day, just the day prior to the Passover. Even if all of the Jews of the empire would not hear of the edict at this time, those in Shushan would. Mordecai's Passover remembrance of the Jews' deliverance would be a mournful taste of future Jewish destruction. It should be noted, though, that an almost exact reoccurrence of this event happened just under 500 years later. And this is very key to understanding what's going on in the book of Esther. When at this same time, the Gospels record that the Jews themselves conspired together with the Gentiles and the powers of darkness to destroy the true Passover lamb, Christ Jesus. But just as the Jews of this time were to be delivered by God, who is working behind the scenes on their behalf, so Christ would be delivered from death by God, who destroyed Satan's power through the resurrection. In this, the Jews cut themselves off from his favor. Those who were friends became his enemies, and those who were far off were brought near. Verse 12 continues, And a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language, in the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. The decree went out to all officials throughout the empire 11 months prior to its execution. This would take some time for the messages to be received, but even if it was a couple weeks, there would still be many, many months of terror left for the Jews. Those who could get up and flee very well might do so. For those who stayed, they only did so in anticipation of certain death. One new and rare word is used here, a harshtapan or satrap. It is a Persian loan word which will only be seen four times in Esther. This now also introduces another set of twos. It is the actual issuance of a royal edict for the destruction of the Jews. This one will be overwritten in chapter 8. One is for the Jews' destruction, one is for their salvation. They contrast, but they confirm God's overarching protection of the Jews, despite the wicked plots against them. Man enacts, but God rules over man as absolute sovereign. Verse 13, and the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. The courier system of the empire is described by Xenophon. It was highly efficient, modeling our Pony Express. The verse here, citing the content of the letter, uses many surplus words, as many as a Dickens novel. Destroy, kill, annihilate, and young, and old, little children, and women. The cruel passion of the overuse is to ensure that complete destruction of all Jews, without exception, is the ultimate goal. Now, does anybody see 1 Samuel 15 in there? Remember what Saul was to do to the Amalekites, and he didn't, and he kept the booty? Well, here, they're allowed to keep the booty, but they're to kill all the Jews. So you see what's going on here. It's all critical to understanding what's going on in the book of Esther. The timing of the mandate is for exactly 11 months from the date of the issuance, or the 13th of the 12th month. 
plundering of the possessions is mandated, then it would be assumed that the royal coffers would receive at least a portion of what was taken. E.W. Bollinger defines the number 13 as the number connected to rebellion, apostasy, defection, corruption, disintegration, revolution, or some other kindred idea. It is very fitting indeed. Verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as a law in every province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. It was not sufficient for a letter to be sent to the governors with instructions of what they were to do. Instead, a patsagen, or an exact copy of the edict, was to be made in the language of the people. The word is also Persian, showing the careful nature of the author to ensure the details are exacting concerning the transcript to be made. It was to be posted so that all could see it and to understand what the king had ordered. Thus, all the people would be aware of and ready for the events of the chosen day. Verse 15, the couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. As it is a royal edict, the message would impel the couriers to ensure it was transmitted as quickly as possible. The post would travel by day and by night until it reached its intended destination. Further, an immediately available copy was posted in Shushan itself. The joyous day of Passover would be turned into mourning and lamentation for the Jews of Shushan. Verse 15 finishes our verses today with, So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Here is another of the set of twos. In this verse, the city of Shushan is said to be perplexed. In verse 815, it will rejoice and be glad. They contrast, certainly, but they confirm the wise proverb of Solomon. He says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. That's Proverbs 29, verse 2. The contrasts are evident. The king and Haman sat down with purpose to eat and drink. But the people of the city were book or perplexed. The word is used but three times in scripture and its meaning is confusion. But it gives the sense of wandering aimlessly. One could think of the guy who is fired from his job and who walks without purpose out of the building with the pink slip hanging in his hand his limp hand muttering, what will I do? What will I do? So while they sat, the people wandered. While they ate and drank, the people's stomachs were turning. While they laughed, the people mourned in horror. While they were being filled, the people had been drained. While the destruction of the Jews was Haman's delight, sadness for them was the people's plight. The chapter ends on this troubling (coughs) note. The enemies of God's people always rejoice when such things occur. Jesus himself said this before his crucifixion. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Mordecai here, representative of the Jewish people, is being used as a type of Christ to come. They were, for all intents and purposes, as good as dead, and yet they would be restored to life plus, and so it is with Christ He truly was crucified and died, but he rose with all authority and power in heaven and earth granted to him. The Bible says in Proverbs that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In his control of even the perim or lots used by Haman, the Lord orchestrated it so that there would be almost 11 months for the decision to be overturned and for the events to take a new and wonderful path This is true with every moment of our life. 
We are stuck in time and we cannot see a single moment ahead, but God is already at the very end of it all. He is working out our good even during times which seem horribly bad. The Jews of Mordecai's day found this out, and we find it out each time the future unfolds in a positive way for us. I need a place to stay. I'm losing where I am. Guess what? The Lord will provide. I lost my job. Don't worry. Something better will come up. He may not provide for every want, but the Lord provides for every need. We keep getting proofs of this again and again, and we keep forgetting as soon as the new day begins. Don't fret. Don't be anxious. Don't be disheartened. Destruction has been determined by man, but glorification has been decreed by God. For those in Christ Jesus, even death itself cannot destroy our hope. While Haman smugly thinks that he has the final say, the Lord is laughing louder, saying, No way. But all of the words of comfort about a good and final end are only true for those who are in Christ. You can only be assured of the Lord's blessings by being a child of the Lord. Then there is only one way that that can happen, and that is through receiving Jesus Christ and being one of his redeemed. He put it up on the screen for us when he was speaking earlier, Usama. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. That's an exclusive statement. I've said in the Bible class many times that in the Bible, not every every means every and not all means all, okay? But in this case, it does. It is an exclusive statement. Everything has to be taken in context, and the context is that God stepped out of the infinite realm, united with human flesh, and became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And because he did that, and because he gave that life up on the cross of Calvary in exchange for our sins, it would be utterly ridiculous for John 14, 6 to mean anything other than what it means. There is one way to God, and it is through Jesus Christ. If there was one person on this planet that could merit heaven or that could get an end around the cross of Jesus Christ, then the cross of Jesus Christ means absolutely diddly. Diddly. That is the truth that we have to hold on to, is that there is the path of salvation given to us by Jesus Christ, and we are to cling to it. When we're having tough times, Elaine's back from vacation. She went through a tough time for a year last year, all of us joining in with her. What good times are ahead for both Paul and for her? Yesterday, I sat in the ICU, and I actually quoted a part of this sermon right here in this paragraph to the lady sitting next to her husband. And I said, I know you can't see one second ahead. So why worry about what's a day ahead? Why worry what's a week ahead? Why worry about a year ahead? We don't know what's coming one second from now. So just live your life. The good is already determined. My friend who's there in the ICU, whether he comes out of it or not, is saved. She's saved. They don't have any worries in the world. They will have mourning for their loss, separation, but they will have no worries at all. We need to keep this in proper perspective when we're facing our trials. But first, call on Jesus Christ and be saved by his shed blood. Okay? That's what you need to do today. Our closing verse comes from Isaiah 46. It's verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. He pleasures to spend eternity with you if you have called on Jesus Christ. That is his will, and he will do all that he pleasures. It is a guarantee. 
don't fret the small things. Look for the good things that lie ahead as we go through the small things one at a time. Next week is Esther 4, 1 through 17. Whole chapter again. In the omnipresence of the Lord, we need to be schooled and colleged. It's entitled Unseen and Unacknowledged. That'll be your six Esther sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. At times, you might feel as if he has no great design for you in life, but he has brought you to this moment to reveal his glory in and through you. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Short poem, 15 verses, and we'll be done. There is a certain people, it's called. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and his seat above all the princes who were with him, as he deemed right. Then all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him, so that they would get this straight. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Why can't you get things straight? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them as planned, that they told it to Haman, to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. This is why this thing he wouldn't do. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, this thing he wouldn't do, Haman was filled with wrath, and he was determined to do in this Jew. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. To him this thing was shown. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. They were the people of Mordecai. He wanted them all done in for sure. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of Ahasuerus the king, they cast poor, that is the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month of this thing, until it fell on the twelfth month of the calendar, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all the other peoples. I think that they're accursed. And they do not keep the king's laws. It's crazy and insane. Therefore, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written so that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver, so I shall do, into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries, if approved by you. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, believing that what he was doing was good and right. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you, so this thing you were instructed to do. Then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month when the year was new, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to do. To the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, so they were equipped. To the officials of all people, to every province according to its script. And to every people in their language, in the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written out and sealed with the king's signet ring, so that there would be no doubt. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day was to be accomplished this terrible news. On the 13th day of the 12th month, if you did wonder, which is the month of Adar, and to their possessions, plunder. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, as the law did say, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. 
The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed at this bombshell. Lord God, thank you for your presence that is with us, even when we don't realize that you are there. Because you sent your own son, Jesus, we can know that you truly do care. And so, Lord, be real to us in a wonderful new way. Open our minds and our hearts to seeing you always through every step we take and throughout every day. Be real to us, O God, and to you we shall give all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the encouraging nature of this book, despite the terrible things that are proclaimed, despite the confusing pictures which you're giving us, which uh, make it hard to understand what's actually going on and what you're trying to tell us with this book. We thank you because it's a book of encouragement. It's a book that shows a good end for the people of God. And Lord, we would certainly today lift up those people, your people, Israel, the Jews of this world, that they would understand that they have a good end, but that they are not living towards that end right now. And so only disaster is coming their way until they turn to you. And we would pray that many, many would do so, that they would be saved by the shed blood of Jesus and be saved from the wrath which is coming. But even with that wrath coming, there will be a day where they will be exalted in your presence. So we long for that day, even though the story is difficult along the way. Lord, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Just so you know, when we get to our final sermon, because I typed chapter 10 last week, we, uh, uh, some of you are probably not going to be happy with the conclusion I made about the pictures that are in there. Every, everything in these type of stories, as you learn from the book of Jonah, it all gives us pictures of something else. God doesn't just give us a story and say, this is it. He's got all kinds of stuff he's teaching us. He's teaching us history. He's teaching us geography. He's teaching us spiritual lessons. And he's also teaching us pictures of something else. He's making, as I said, Mordecai a picture of Christ. Okay, you saw that explicitly. Think, who is Haman? Who is this? Who is that? What is that? What is Esther picturing? Right? Think of that. Because when we get to the last one, as long as you're prepared for that, you may say, okay, I can agree with that. Or you might not. You may say, well, that was... That was wrong, but I'm pretty sure that we got this figured out last Monday, and I thank you. I asked for prayers last week, and I thank you for that because I think that we have a good final sermon coming here. It'll be refined over the next eight weeks before we give it, so uh, uh, it'll be with hope, hopefully without all of my typos and all of my, uh, you know, all that. 